On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus, Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stones watered. There were six stone water jars there for Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And Jesus said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. As we open your word, may your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Forgive us for the many trespasses. As we forgive those who time and time again trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil and the evil one. For yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, yours is the glory. May we see it. Amen. You know, one story that has repeatedly captured the hearts and minds of our culture over and over again is the story of the Great Gatsby. Um, it's set in the roaring 1920s, right? And you find this New England setting with this overabundance of indulgence. Jay Gatsby, I mean, he's the traditional rags to riches story. He's got it all. He's got charisma. He's got wealth. He even, at least there for a little bit, has the woman he's always wanted, Daisy Buchanan, right? He has the woman he's always wanted, the life he's always wanted, but what happens? The satisfying party comes to a screeching halt and ends in almost a car crash disaster, ending in murder, cynicism, and love lost. And there is actually a song titled Young and Beautiful for this latest iteration of The Great Gatsby, and I think it captures the story really well. It's written and sung by Lana Del Rey, and she sings, I've seen the world done it all, had my cake now, diamonds, brilliant in Bel Air now, hot summer nights, mid-July when you and I were forever wild, the crazy days, city lights, the way you play with me like a child, and then it gets to the chorus, will you still love me when I'm no longer young and beautiful? Will you still love me when I got nothing but my aching soul? 
I feel those words. Okay, not that I'm you know, afraid of losing my beautiful face or anything like that. But, but I, know, I know at the root on what she's expressing, this longing that she's expressing, that on one hand we have satisfaction, but then on the other hand you have this great fear that how long will this actually last? Because like Gatsby, like Daisy Buchanan, like Lana Del Rey, I'm pretty satisfied with my life. I have a caring wife. I have a beautiful, healthy daughter. You saw her this morning. I have a job I love and feel called to. And yet underneath it all is the kind of the sinking feeling. Some of you know this really well, this fear, this, this question of how long can this really last? In a broken world, how long can wholeness continue on? Even if this morning you aren't satisfied with your life, I can almost guarantee that each and every one of us at least know the momentary feeling of satisfaction, whether it's a full stomach after a Thanksgiving meal, a cool drink on a hot summer day, or maybe a good night's rest, waking up feeling invigorated. Think about it. If you compare most of us, maybe all of us in here, to people throughout the hundreds and thousands of years of history before this point, and then you compare us really to the majority of people around the rest of the planet, we're, going, we're doing pretty well. We're sitting pretty. We have all of our needs met, many of our wants and it'd be fair to categorize, I think each and every one of us in here is happy-ish. You know? We're somewhere in there. We're happy-ish, um, comparatively. And I think each and every one of us in here also know people who are so satisfied, so settled that they aren't looking for Jesus. Friends, family, coworkers, neighbors, who actually don't feel what many philosophers have pointed to, this, this God-shaped vacuum. They're actually very satisfied with life the way it is. Theologian James K. Smith unpacks this type of satisfaction when he writes, you, you know, as a Christian, talking to people who aren't Christians, you came with what you thought were all the answers to the unanswered questions these secular people had, but it didn't take long for you to realize that the questions weren't just unanswered, they were unasked. And they weren't questions, that is, your secular neighbors aren't looking for answers, for some bit of information that's missing from their mental maps. To the contrary, they have completely different maps. In many ways, they have constructed webs of meaning that provide almost all the significance they need in their lives, though a lot hinges on that almost. And almost, ah, it's dangerous alert, dangerously alluring for Christians and non-Christians alike. This almost... And it kind of reminisces of, if you know C.S. Lewis, his writings, when he talks about us as human beings being far too easily pleased. And if we don't get this, if we don't see through the lie of the almost, then it's going to be all the more difficult to share our faith as Jesus has called us to with those who appear fine. Because I'm sure many of us know people in our lives who from the outside looking in, they look like they've got their lives all together. They've got a really steady job. They come with smiles on their face. Probably at work, they're nicer than you are. <laughs> they have a family of four that just loves one another deeply. And you ask the question as a Christian, and they're not a Christian, and you ask the question, well, do I want to screw that up? You know, is it, is it worth sharing Jesus here? It's one thing to tell the murderer, the habitual liar, the adulterer, the, the arrogant, fill in the blank with whoever is our stereotypical most broken person, and to, the, to share the gospel with them. But how do we share the gospel with the satisfied, with those that seem like life is fine? 
Well, this fall, we're learning together as a community how to share Jesus the way Jesus shared himself, to do so thoughtfully and winsomely. We saw last week how Jesus hears the skeptic. He hears his questions, her questions. And he challenges mindless belief as well as mindless doubt. But then this morning, when Jesus comes to the satisfied, he listens through their silence. He listens through their silence when they're not asking the questions. He can see, even though outside they communicate with their life, with their words, that everything's fine for now. He hears the insecurity, the insecurity under it all. He knows the fallout that's on the way. He knows the brokenness that hides within each and every one of us. You know, when we proclaim, Jesus has rescued us, and we celebrate that, the satisfied will say in response, rescued? But my life's fine. I, I don't, what, rescued from what? You know what they say, if it ain't bro- broke, don't fix it, right? So I don't understand why I'm being rescued. Well, this morning we're going to see how the gospel is good news for people who don't see it as newsworthy. And then we're going to ask the question, how are we to show who they're missing? How are we to show who they're missing? So now maybe when you walked through those doors this morning, you even asked the question and you consider yourself as one of the satisfied. You're here this morning and you're kind of questioning why you're even here. Why did I come? And although you may believe Jesus existed in history, you just don't feel like he's very relevant right now. You don't need him. You feel fine. Well, as we walk through the gospel account of John that was just read for us, taking in all the sights, listening to the story, we're going to find that Jesus listens, and he listens to what isn't said. He listens to what isn't said. Before the wine runs out, before the crisis you know, happens, when the satisfied aren't even looking for Jesus, Jesus is there. He's waiting to surprise us with what we've been missing It's when the party almost goes off the rails. And when the satisfied get a taste of Jesus, that, and let's just look at the story before I get carried away. So if if you haven't already, turn with me to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. At the end of John chapter 1, Jesus has promised his new followers that they're going to see greater things. Greater things are coming. You think this is great? Well, just get ready. Buckle up. Here we go. But it's not like watching your favorite show on Netflix and binge watching. (laughs) They're stuck in Cana of Galilee. It's three days later and they're waiting. So what's, what's going on? Well, Jesus, has, Jesus is there, his early adopters, his disciples, and his followers and his family, they're all invited to a big wedding. Who's going to pass up going to a wedding? I mean, every culture has its form of the wedding celebration with their timetables and their traditions. Um, actually, my wife's sister married a man from Nigeria. And one of the traditional foods was fish head soup, um, wasn't my favorite, but it went over well. Um, and the celebration went all day. And I'm not talking about a white person's all day, which is probably like three or four hours. Oh, this has been all day. Um, but I'm talking about an African all day, which is more literal and probably a better term. You know, 24 hours. It was an all day affair. And when you get to Jewish weddings in the first century, they were a week long affair. I mean, it was the whole week, it looked much more like a community festival. Then it did a nice little event with a few folks off to the side. And as we blow in with the breeze from the Mediterranean through the valleys and we land in Cana, some of the first sights and sounds we see are people dancing and laughing 
Children are on the tiptoes of their grandpas, twirling in circles, giggling. I mean, the, the wine is flowing just as much as the laughter is, as, as, as when two old friends meet together after they haven't seen each other for years. And with the whole community gathered together to join around this union between a bride and her groom for a lifetime. But when Jesus comes, even right here at the very beginning, when he comes to the satisfied, he hears underneath the laughter and underneath the music, he hears the longings of a human heart. One thing he knows that we need to remember is that everyone's thirsty. Everyone is thirsting for someone, even if we don't recognize it. In our striving for celebration as a community, in our longing for true love that lasts a lifetime and finds consummation, in our longing for beauty, and our longing for accomplishment in our workspaces. It's in these moments we, re- we remember and feel the nagging feeling of almost, where good things feel like they should be better or last longer, where great things almost point to a greater someone. Everyone is thirsting. Everyone is longing, even under the laughter, even under the dancing. And in the midst of the celebration, the reception kind of goes on without missing a beat. And Jesus' mama, Mary, she comes to Jesus and leans in and says, you know, I just saw the last bottle of wine get poured out. I don't know if you noticed this, Jesus, but I can't find any more anywhere else. Um, Hint, hint. I mean, it's, it's kind of interesting. Hey, the wine ran out, Jesus. I don't think this is just informative. And by everything in the narrative, it's not informative. Mary's making a request. And why she shares the secret with Jesus, we're not really sure. He hasn't done any miracles up to this point. I mean, the Apostle John says this is his first sign that he's done. So, but Mary comes, even though knowing the groom is the one who's supposed to provide enough wine for the whole wedding, the whole week long. And for whatever reason, the groom, whether he wasn't wealthy enough or wasn't wise enough, the wine ran out. So we're in a bit of a dilemma. And you can imagine the scene. Jesus is looking around with Mary. And it's kind of ominous because amidst the dancing, the singing, the eating, and the drinking, slowly the last vestiges of wine are disappearing and people are not going to be able to get refills. Now, if you've ever been to a wedding with with wine, you know you don't want it to run out, right? This is not a good situation. Which is why, I want to make a second observation, which is why in our culture... We have to remember that everything ends. Even if we hate acknowledging it, everything ends. You, your neighbor, your coworker, maybe we have enough for now, maybe enough entertainment to fill our imaginations, enough food to fill our stomachs, enough work to busy our souls, but for how long? How long will the fulfillment, the ambition, the joy last? I mean, the party goers, they have no idea the wine is about to run out. That at the height of celebration, everything's going to change. So how does Jesus respond to his mother's intel? Well, it's actually with a very weird response. Verse 4, woman, what does this have to do with me? What? You know, it's, it feels very abrasive in the midst of the first two chapters of John that Jesus is responding to his mother like this. So what's going on? The Greek here, it's not easy to translate. And depending upon your mood that day when you're reading it, actually, you can misconstrue what's going on here between Jesus and Mary. The word woman, it's hard to convey. It's kind of like our southern word man. We're here in Kansas City, so some people use it, some people don't. We're kind of this weird amalgamation. It's not meant to be harsh, though. That's what we can tell with this word. 
And what's also interesting is that the only other time this word is used, it's when Jesus is hanging on the cross. And he's looking down at Mary. And he looks at John and he says, Woman, behold your son. Speaking of John. And looks at John and says, John, behold your mother. It's words of compassion. And yet relational distance. Not demeaning sexism as we step into this text. But then just Jesus says something that's, an, that's also very strange. He goes, my hour has not yet come. And when you're first starting to read John, you go, what in the world is Jesus talking about? You know, was he going to do like a little jig in the middle of the wedding? What's, what's going on? You know, you see throughout the book of John, Jesus uses this word hour to point to the cross, to the final hour, his whole purpose for coming, where his outrageous death will pay for the sins of the world. And his blood will flow like wine and bring life to all who believe and trust in him. Over and over he says, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. And then right before he goes to the cross, he says, my hour is here. No one has a unique inside track with Jesus. No one guides Jesus' destiny save one. And it's not Mary. It's his father. I mean, can you imagine Mary... She spent 30 years with Jesus. She gave birth to Jesus, watched him walk for the first time, learned to talk, grow into his craft as a carpenter. But now at an event, weddings, where the relationships between parents and children transition, leaving and cleaving happens, now there's the relational distance between Mary and Jesus. She no longer can just see him as her son, but now she must see him as God's son to whom she must bow and worship and come to very differently. And what's so beautiful about Mary, and quite frankly, what tempts so many around the world to worship and pray to Mary, is that she does exactly that. How does she respond with Jesus but with utter trust? It's a beautiful picture. I mean, she, she trusts that he'll take care of it in his way and his, his timing. She tells the servants, all right, now do whatever he says, which may be nothing. Do whatever he says, which may be absolutely nothing. And walking away, she leaves the ball in Jesus' court. And I love what happens next. Um, Jesus, he's a new rabbi on the scene many times. I mean, he almost at this point in John chapter 2 People can, you can kind of imagine him as a brand new entrepreneur wondering if his business is going to make it or not. And, and what he does is he tells these servants, I want you to take these six huge stone jars that are used for Jewish purification. They'd wash their hands, their face, their body as this purification process before going to the temple or even imagining now their home as a place where God dwells through the Pharisee teaching and guiding. And he says, I want you to grab these Jewish purification jars with a capacity of about 20 to 30 imperial gallons. So it's about 150 of our gallons. And he tells the servants to fill the brim, fill them to the brim with water. Then somehow at some point, we're not told how or when this happens, but it's a matter of seconds because this water becomes wine. And then Jesus commands the servants to take a picture of this wine to the master of the feast. Wouldn't it be cool to be called the master of the feast? I'd love to be at a party where someone's like, hey, you need the master of the feast? Gabe's over there. Hey! That would just be awesome. Um, but and here, here's something else too. As an aside, this is one of the reasons why I believe the gospel of John is true historically. Because no one's going to add this and, and expect it to really be compelling at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. 
okay, there is a potential for a little shame for this newlywed couple if they don't provide wine for everybody at the wedding. But it's not life-threatening. I mean, we know there's plenty of water, right? Because that's where the wine came from, was from all this water. And so they weren't going to dehydrate to death. This isn't a leper who needs healing. There's not a family starving and Jesus provides food. This isn't a broken family that Jesus is reconciling. Jesus is providing luxury for a celebration. This is how he starts it out. And Jesus surprises the satisfied with something better. I mean, who would make that up about the Messiah, (laughs) right? No one. It has to be true. Returning to the story, the master of the feast, he's kind of like the sommelier of a restaurant, like a really nice restaurant. He knows good wine when he tastes it. And his response, I mean, it says it all. After drinking a little bit, something happens to his taste buds. You can imagine his eyes widen as the tannins and the acidity are doing their work on a way on human lips and tongue that have never happened before. And he chases down the groom. You see, normally people would give the best wine at the very beginning for multiple reasons. I mean, imagine your first time, your first bite in a really good steak. (laughs) You're getting hungry. The first bite in a really good steak, that first sip of coffee in the morning. Oh, that's that's me right there. Or the, the lick of ice cream, the first lick of ice cream on a really, really hot day. That's when the flavor is explosive. It's meant to whack or just to bring the most punch, right? Well, not to mention also that people are getting a little tipsy at this point. That's what the the master of the feast is saying. You know, you kind of give this at the beginning so that when people don't necessarily realize what they're drinking, um, they can at least appreciate the good stuff to begin with. And he's perplexed. He's like, why did you save the best for last? Makes sense in so many other things, but not with wine. And Jesus knows not only that everyone's thirsty and that everything comes to an end, but we need to remember what Jesus remembers, that no matter their state in life, everyone wants more. Everyone wants more. But we really don't believe that he can do it. Everyone wants more out of life, but we really just don't believe that Jesus could do better. The master of the feast, he was satisfied until he had the new wine. He didn't think it could get any better until Jesus brought something better. He didn't think he could want more until he was given more. Now everything he drank before was two-buck chuck from Trader Joe's, which isn't terrible. (laughs) But this, this is top-shelf stuff. This is premium. It makes the master of the feast, the respected organizer, fall back in utter shock. Now, we, we all tend to have a different perspective on wine and, and how it should be involved in the Christian's life. And there is the complexity of addiction that plagues so many. But in Scripture, wine is portrayed as a gift that can be either used as a gift or abused. It was usually a sign of blessing to God's people. So for example, it was part of the offering given to God by Abraham in Genesis. It's celebrated in the Psalms. It's a part of the feast that wisdom sets out for the wise in Proverbs. It's part of the covenantal blessing of those returning to the land and the prophets and on and on. Wine was a sign. It's a symbol of God's favor and celebration over his people in Scripture. So when Jesus decides to save a party by making water into wine as his first miracle, 
The disciples saw the sign for what it was. They saw Jesus for who he was. In John chapter 2, verse 11, it says, His glory was made manifest. He was revealed. He was seen for who he is. They finally found someone who comes bringing the new wine of joy without measure. One who isn't satisfied with almost becomes filling life to the brim, one who fully and forever will quench the thirst of everyone who believes upon him. This is Jesus. This is his Messiah. This is what it means to be God and the Son of God. And it's here, at the end of this story, after seeing Jesus surprised, even the satisfied, that I want to reflect upon two questions this morning for each and every one of us. The first is to those of us who feel satisfied or want to be satisfied, so that pretty much covers all of us. Um, My question is, what will you do when the wine runs out? What will you do when the wine runs out? When what satisfies you fails you? Your marriage isn't easy anymore. Your spouse has changed. It happens throughout history. We get different hobbies. Our personalities are malleable. Your job isn't as satisfying. Your health goes south. The excitement of the party begins to dissipate. What's going to happen to your happiness? Where's your joy going to go? Is your life going to end? I mean, we so often assume, actually like Mary did, that Jesus doesn't know about our little issues. These questions that are under the surface, the nagging feeling of almost or waiting for the other shoe to drop. But right here in the story, we see when no one was really looking for Jesus, Jesus is listening. And he comes with something better. He comes with himself. And what he offers is wine that never runs out. A joy that never ends. A life where almost becomes always. A totally new understanding of satisfaction for those who believe in him. You know, Jesus himself says later on in John, I am come that they may have life and life abundantly. This is Jesus. 150 gallons of the best wine abundantly. And one theologian, I think he describes the life that Christ offers so beautifully. He says, and it's on the screen, life enlivened, enhanced, intensified, invigorated is the salvation Jesus brings. Of course, it's also life healed, redeemed, restored. Salvation is always putting wrongs right, healing hurts, restoring what is lost. But it's more than that. Salvation also makes what is really good so much better. Certainly Jesus shared our griefs in order to assuage them. He felt our pains in order to heal them. He bore our sins in order to deliver us from them. But he also shared our joys in order to enhance them. He shared our life in order to raise it to the nth degree of aliveness. I mean, who doesn't want that, right? An apple off the tree is way better than an apple out of the store. Bread out of the oven is better than bread out of the bag. And that's what Jesus is offering, a new life to the nth degree of aliveness. I love that. The psalmist says, come, taste and see that the Lord is good. And so many of us in our life, we wrestle, is really God that good? You say that, Gabe, but is he really that good? Well, come, taste, and see. Will you look to the one who will never run out? Look to Jesus 
to be the fulfillment of our heart's greatest longings. Because only he has the capacity to push our lives past almost. Now, the second question is for each of us who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. It's how can we show those who don't have Jesus what they're missing? If you follow the narrative in John chapter 2, verse 11, it says the disciples, they saw who Jesus was, his glory. It was manifested to them and they believed him. And if you follow the gospel narratives and you step into the book of Acts and then actually you follow church history, you see whenever someone tastes and sees how beautiful and how brilliant and how glorious Jesus is, it changes their life. They can't remain quiet. And so I ask each and every one of us, I ask myself, how do you taste to those around you? How do you taste to those around you? If you look across the Gospel of John, the life that Jesus gives is the life that Jesus himself lived. The life that Jesus gives is the life that Jesus himself lived. In other words, when we drink deeply of Christ and we come to know him in the depths of who he is, we begin to taste like him to those around us. Now, this doesn't mean we're going to always be little bubbly, smiley people, because that's champagne. <laughs> that's not wine, all right? Um, so let's be clear. Um, wine, it has depth. It's been aged in the wood of the cross. It sometimes stings the jaw, and it has this strange intermixed flavors that shock and surprise us and bring the flavor out of everything else that coincides with it. And as we interact with the satisfied around us and maybe even within us, we should be having the shocking taste of a new wine in a world of water. It reminded me actually of a card I saw the other day, a birthday card. Um, and it's up on the screen, I think. Yeah, Reverend, have you been drinking? Just water, officer. And then he goes to the next slide. Well, then why do I smell wine? Good Lord, he's done it again. You know, um, <laughs> I mean, how awesome would that be, you know, if people, <laughs> I know, it got me too, so, you know, how, how awesome would it be if people are around us, and they start asking that question, I, I, I smell wine, I notice something different in you, something different about who you are, something alive, like life that's worth living, life and life abundant, and we can say, good Lord, he's done it again, but now he's done it in me. But I, the hard thing is, is I don't know if that's necessarily the practice of the church. It's something I have to assess in my own life and really ask, is that my habit? You know, Soren Kierkegaard, the great 19th century Danish philosopher said, Christ turned water into wine, but the church is succeeding in doing something even more difficult. It's turned wine into water. Wine into water. I mean, and what's, what's he talking about here? Well, as Christians, we too often can trivialize life by not pursuing the meaning of life we've been given in Christ. We go on as if nothing's changed. We live for our own comforts. We live in the moment and that's it. We frantically try to, to constantly enliven the surface of our lives with these neat novelties or excitement. Or instead, remember the life that Jesus gives is the life that he himself lived. A life that's painfully open to the needs and hurts of those around us. A life that finds joy in serving, understanding in listening, satisfaction in giving, fulfillment in sac uh, sacrifice, and utter... 
Well, I can't, I'm going to use it again. Utter joy in proclaiming the good news of what Christ has done in our life. That's the life that Jesus gives. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy so we can be bubbly champagne. It doesn't mean we should be bubbly champagne when life is really rocky. It's a whole different kind of life that redefines joy and invites us into a joy that comes from service, which is paradoxical from the rest of the world. That's real wine that comes with the tannins and the acidity of the gospel. It stings the jaw and brings flavor out of everything else that it's around. And one simple practice, one way for us as people to taste or for people around us to taste the wine of Christ in you is to have people over for dinner. Um, as Christians, we should really throw the best dinner parties uh, and, and because we've been called to overflow with generosity, with care, with hospitality. And it's in those moments, it's hard sometimes to have authentic, genuine conversations with people when you're just buzzing past them at the, the water cooler or for me, walking my dog and picking up presents. Um, you know, it's hard sometimes to have those conversations, but when you invite them over for dinner, it shows a level of authenticity. It invites people into conversation and genuineness where you can start asking those questions on where their satisfaction lies. Real conversation, real friendship. So I want you to look back. For those of you who were here last week or at one of our campuses last week, Look back on that card with those eight boxes and think of one person you can invite to dinner. If this is your first week back, you weren't here last week, think of one person in your sphere of influence who doesn't know the better Jesus and start asking yourself, how can I invite them over for dinner? How can you show them the new wine? All right, you know. Look, look and I know this, this practical next step may seem overly simplistic for some or to others, this can feel really daunting depending on your personality. Um, so I wanna get real practical and we had a team of folks um, that are really smart, work and give, and five, give five quick tips to sharpen and empower us to do this well, okay? And there's going to be a blog that is already up on the web at Christ Community um, that references these five. So five tips for hosting a dinner. We're getting real practical, all right? Um, for some of you say this is, this is child's play, but for others of you, you're you know, sharpening your pencil, getting ready to jot it down. First, plan, then pray. The first one seems obvious. The second one, I think, at least in my own life, as I thought about it, really happens in terms of a dinner party. I, I, you know, I like to pray, but when I'm thinking of a dinner party, plan. So do the hard work of or, organizing what's the best day for everyone to come together, who's going to bring what. Uh, invite other people to bring other components of the meal, but then also invite God to be present. Be praying that God would accomplish his purpose in the meal. Secondly, think of people, not agendas. You know, it's, it's easy to invite people with an agenda. I need to talk with them about, you know, coming to church, about Jesus. And if we love people, that stuff will come out. We don't have to set an agenda, but allow their story and their life to set the agenda. And you'll see how Jesus is already working. And then take those on-ramps. Be very open about your walk with Christ and your engagement in the church, definitely. But don't come with such a stringent agenda that it's going to feel very forced and wooden. Thirdly, bless, not impress. The point of your, your gathering is not to impress people with this new cuisine you've got um, or how clean your room is or your, your room. Um, if you, if you ha live in a home with multiple folks, I guess, um, your house, your loft, not how well your dog behaves because my dog behaves terribly. Um, it's not about that. It's about blessing people, about extending friendship, about having honest conversations and just letting them know you care about them 
people see past that stuff. They see past the messiness or the, the frantic nature sometimes of getting these things together. It's about blessing people, not impressing people. Fourth, make it simple, not complex. Come with a recipe you know well or a restaurant that you know well, and then you can put it in a homemade, di- or, you know, one of your own dishes, however you want to do that. Go with something you trust and present it to people. Don't try to figure out like this brand new recipe so that when they get there, you're like frantically moving around. Yeah, grab a seat. I'll be with you in a minute. You know, and you're like going all around trying to finish this meal you've never made. Make it very simple so that you can be with people. The point is to be there, not to always be worrying about all the logistics when people are over there having dinner with you. And then fifthly, have a great time, okay? Dinner parties are meant to be fun. And people can sense when you're having fun or when you're really stressed. (laughs) And if you have a guest over and you feel really stressed and they feel really stressed and they go, I wish I wouldn't have put this burden on them, but that's the last thing you want them to feel. You want them to feel, ah, we're having fun together. We're building a relationship together. You know, it's this simple practice that can transform how we taste to others. So who are you thinking? Uh, Be thinking about that this week. Be praying about that this week. Who can you be bringing over, inviting over to go out to dinner or to have over to your loft or your home to get to know. It's very practical, but sometimes we need that, right? Just that, what's that next step? But then as we close, there's one more practice that we do weekly that reminds us on how we're to taste to others, on how we get our taste at the very beginning. A meal that reminds us that we too are invited to the table when we don't deserve to be invited Before Jesus went to the cross, he gave us a meal. And in this common table at communion, we take time to tangibly remember the everlasting new wine of Jesus and the gospel. This this communion, it proclaims the gospel to senses we don't always get proclaimed to, the, the sense of taste and touch and smell in a very real and beautiful way. And as we come, we remember through common broken bread, Jesus' body broken for us, that we might know life and life abundant. Through common juice, we remember his blood shed like the new wine that brings forgiveness to all who find salvation in him and him alone. If you're new here, I want to tell you how we do this. Um, You don't have to be a member of Christ's community to partake in the Lord's Supper, but we do ask that Jesus Christ be your Lord and Savior. If Jesus isn't your Lord and Savior, I'm really glad you're here. I'm really glad all of you are here. But I'm also really glad that if you're here and Jesus isn't your Lord and Savior, we value questions. We value you being here learning with us as we learn and follow Jesus and ask questions together. So use this time as a time to pray that Jesus would continue to reveal himself because he's listening. You're not praying into thin air. Jesus is listening. 